0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 310. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Matthew Marister.
1: Super happy to be here with you all. Dude, and we're thrilled to have you. Yeah, it's been a a little bit. Yeah,
0: yeah, he he had to take a break there for a couple episodes, but he's back in the producer's chair. (laughs) He's getting after it. I got a message from him this morning. He's like, oh, man, crap, guys. I just realized there's a lot of stuff I haven't done in the last uh, week or two, and so I got to get after it.
1: Yeah, I'm like, man, I'm sorry I dropped the ball on all these things, but... He yeah. Picked up the slack, so Dude, I, I really i don't know it. about
0: that. Like, the podcast has been falling by the wayside because you've been gone. <laughs> I still haven't gotten Tuesday's episode published. <laughs> uh, that's gonna happen today, though. Uh, r- first thing right after I'm done with uh, this episode. So, <clears throat> uh, welcome to today's show. We're gonna be talking about nine gun myths busted. Uh, it's quite a list. We'll have to, what we'll to move right along. Yeah, I added a few more, Matthew, in case you didn't notice. Yeah. Because I thought I like nine this. sounded like a really great number, and actually corresponds with a a, uh, a presentation I'll be doing at the Concealed Carry Expo. Actually, did did it last year as well. I'm going to do a repeat of this year because I'll have more data and more stuff to share. And it's 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 very similar. It's it's about uh, busting myths and uh, not sharing some of the same like. Tell you what, if you're in going to be in the Pittsburgh area in the middle of May for the Conceal Carry Expo, you're going to want to come and see that presentation. Uh it's called uh nine gun nine gun myths busted by statistical analysis of justified saves. <laughs> it's a mouthful, right? <laughs> but basically all it is is it's a, it's empirical data. Okay, I've researched all these shootings, these justified save stories we've shared on the on the podcast. Matthew's helped me with uh doing some of that research. And uh so I've just compiled a lot of data as much as I can from all of Justified Stories that we have shared on the podcast. And I share a lot of that in that presentation and, and, and point out like the things that we think are true that aren't actually true and the things that maybe we don't think are true that actually are true because of statistics, right? Because like statistics, because math and stuff. Anyway, so <laughs> anyway, but today we're talking about nine gun miss, and we're gonna bust those gun miss, and they and some of them are kind of similar, but some of them are totally different as well. So, uh, but today's episode is made possible by the concealedcarry.com adhesive reactive targets. I like to just call them the peel and stick targets because that's that that sounds a lot more descriptive. You peel them, you stick them, and you shoot them, and they kind of like glow or whatever. They splatter, you know, sort of thing, right? When you when you hit them with a with a bullet, so uh, they're great. They're high vis. Excuse me, I'm trying not to use high, trademark names and stuff. They're high visibility, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're they're great targets. We, we worked really hard in the development of these. Uh, we don't make them in-house. We have somebody that makes them for us, and they're really awesome, um, and they make them to our specification. But the adhesive on them is really good. That was like our number one thing. If we're going to have these targets, we want them to actually stick because I've, I've bought those peel-and-stick targets before that don't, flipping stick to your target backer especially if things are even slightly humid or moist or cold or dirty and these suckers like stick to anything in almost any condition so they're great targets available now in our store and we've got a promotion on those this week only Uh, in fact I'm trying to think what's the coupon code I forgot the coupon code I'd give the coupon code it's something we actually gave in shop talk you'd have to almost watch shop talk to get the deal Right. But mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll look that up and I'll, I'll announce that at some point here in, in, in the episode once I remember what that is. But today's episode is also made possible by Guardian Nation. And right now, if you were to join Guardian Nation and do nothing more than log into your account and watch all of the Guardian Nation live recordings, you would have 42 hours of video content to watch. 42 hours of training from the top trainers and instructors in the country. These are people who would charge about $250 to $300 minimum for a day of training. People like Andrew Branca, Rob Latham, Mike Seeklander, John Lovell, Kyle Lamb, Rob Pincus, Carl Wren, Jason Speller, Dave Spalding, Chris Serino, Clint Macro, Jeff Houston, Eric Frohart, Jeff Gonzalez, John Correa, Beth Alcazar, James Yeager, Mike Hughes, and that's not even all of them. What did we say? 42 hours of content available in the Guardian Nation Live Library, And we have tons of other video training content available for Guardian Nation members only. Sorry, everybody else, but you're going to want to look into Guardian Nation. Is it worth $38.45 to spend the equivalent of five and a half days of training time with these instructors? Uh, Is the sky blue? (laughs) Is the moon (laughs) in the sky? Does the sun rise every morning? Heck yeah, I think it's worth <laughs> I absolutely think it's worth it. So join the day. Go to GuardianNation.com to enjoy this and so many other benefits of membership. I was going to say, is the, is the Pope Catholic? But I was afraid I'd offend somebody. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right, guys. So um, really, really excited about uh, today's episode, and I'm so excited that Matthew is back here with us. So let's jump right into it. We've got nine myths to cover. Uh, Matthew, why don't you shoot for the first one? But before you do, let me just point out that the first three come from an article written by a, a, a special contributor to our website, Eve Flanagan. She's an instructor in New Mexico, uh, very experienced instructor, shooter, competitor. She she writes for a number of publications. Uh, we really love Eve Flanagan. And her article, Three Gun Defense Myths Busted, is kind of the basis and kind of where we're starting at here today. And then we're just going to run with it. So Matthew, what's the first one?
1: Yeah. So this is right from her article, and I totally agree. Aim for the extremities. And anybody who's either been in a class or I'm sure you, well, you know, instructing class, I know I do always get questions like, well, why don't we aim for like the arm or the leg or, you know, we, we don't if we're not trying to, um, if our intent isn't to kill them, right? Why don't we aim for like, a less lethal area of the body. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, basically an easy answer is, I mean, it is so difficult to shoot somebody who's moving, attacking you, you're moving, you're being attacked. Um, let alone now you're shrinking that target zone down to like the size of an arm, right. Or the size of a hand or a leg. Um, it, it's so difficult uh, arms are flailing. Usually, the torso, even if the arms are moving, the torso moves a lot less. Right, so um, that's one thing. I mean, it, it, you just increase your difficulty of that shot drastically, and by doing that, you put other people at risk by possibly missing and hitting some somebody else somewhere else. Um, and then also, we're. We're not the idea that we target center mass because we're trying to kill the person is is not right. The idea that we target center mass, it, it, yes, it's probably more likely that they're going to die from uh, wounds in a high center chest than the arm, right? But we're not targeting to kill the person. That that those shots in the higher per chest stop the threat quicker. Than an arm, and they're higher, more high probable shots. So, for a number of reasons, you want to shoot high center chest. Um, it, it, you know, if you got on, if a police officer gets on scene, they're like, "Oh, why did you shoot him in the arm?" Well, I didn't really want to kill him; just wanted to kind of scare him and get him to stop doing what he's doing. It it, it could create a, a an image or an idea that like you weren't sure that you were able to use deadly force, so you, you know, you, you took kind of a, a less lethal in your mind um, approach to this incident. So for the, all those reasons, I always tell people, you know, you're, you're aiming high center chest all the time. If you hit an arm, you hit an arm, but you're, you're, you're not shooting to wound or to, you know, weaken the guy, um, or gal who's attacking you.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure, man. You know, a lot of great comments coming in here on Facebook, you know, folks seeing, saying that's stupid. <laughs> uh, that's not a, that's not a good plan. Um, and that's essentially what we're saying here. Yeah, it's pretty dumb, like to plan on shooting for the extremities, for an arm, a leg, a toe. <laughs> As <laughs> someone here said, t- Tim said, "Just aim for the small toe." <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it can, happens he, all the of time. Of course, he's, really, I mean... he's joking, right? But uh, yeah, um, you know, I was recently watching a television program. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. My wife and I were watching, and you know, it's kind of like one of those cop shows, right? And uh, yeah, anyway, so there's a there's a hostage situation. And now a hostage situation is unique, right? Because you already have a small target in that. Usually the perpetrator is maybe, maybe a little bit of his head is visible. And then typically they're going to have a knife or a gun or something to the victim's head. And so, yeah, you mean like you're, you're, you're if you got to make a shot in that situation, like it has to be most likely for the head, right? Cause you need instant incapacitation. and That's a really challenging and difficult shot, right? Like, like, we probably all dream of being able to make that shot, but the, in the reality of how many of us uh, of us actually can do that, it's probably a very small number. Uh, but anyway, in that show, the uh, the cop ends up shooting the guy with a shotgun in the arm and like severing his arm off. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> whoa! But that's probably you know like again, that's TV. Like we can't believe what, what you know what we see on TV. But you see that kind of thing all the time, right? Uh, of cops or actors portraying cops, at least on TV and movies, shooting someone oftentimes in the leg. I'll just shoot them in the leg, shoot them in the knee, shoot them in the shin. And, you know, they're going to go down and then I'll be able to step in and quickly arrest them or take control of them or whatever. Right. So yeah, it's really a dumb, dumb idea. So, uh, now this is probably not a myth that's like super, like this is probably one that's not a big issue. I think for many in our community, I think most actual gun owners and concealed carriers understand that like that's dumb but Mm -hmm. uh but it's definitely a myth that i mean like every time i see some sort of you know officer involved shooting on social media uh if you have you know if it's like on just a news site like a local channel news uh page then they've posted a story about some officer involved shooting and how you know if it if the bad guy only had a knife or didn't really have any Visible or obvious weapon at all, um, but it was a situation that's still justified because of various circumstances. And all the time people are like, why didn't you just shoot him in the leg? You know, and yeah. stuff like that. It's like, um, yeah, because that's dumb. <laughs> so for reasons like Matthew said, uh, likelihood of missing, the likelihood of like your likelihood of over penetrating through an arm Absolutely. or a leg is much greater and much more energy will be retained in that bullet as it passes through there's always that possibility that because of the uh, you know, less amount of flesh that that bullet's passing through, that it doesn't fully uh, uh, expand as well. And so further just enhancing its, ab- you know, its ability to retain energy after it passes through that, that limb. So there's just so many problems uh, about uh, shooting for an extremity. All right, so we, we get that. We bust that. All right, it's done, dead, behind us. <laughs> All right, so next up. Myth number two, if I draw my gun, I'm going to shoot. And so, I mean, this is an interesting one, right? Um it, is it myth? Like, explain to me like how you picture this myth. Like, what what is a person saying when they say, if I draw my gun, I'm going to shoot?
1: Yeah, I, I think this this comes from an idea, like it might come from people are so used to like, okay, I need to draw really quick and get shots on target. Because we know most of these incidents happen very close proximity. So you don't have time to like sit there and get on your sights perfectly and all that stuff. So we're like kind of programming ourselves to anytime I draw, I'm presenting the gun, I'm going to fire, but it might not present that, you know, every situation is independent, but it, your incident might not present that way. It might be a totally justified, you know, I bring up the gun and I start pressing the trigger, you know, and before I break the shot, the guy, realizes holy crap i don't want this to happen and stops and if you have the ability to not pull the trigger at that point then you're under i mean it's your responsibility it's it's to to not pull the trigger now i'm not saying second guess people or anything like that if you're justified to use deadly force you're justified to use it but you know, I, I, I know police officers, I mean, I know I pulled my gun on a lot of people and there was times I was picking up, you know, taking up some of that slack and didn't pull the trigger. Um, was I justified at that point? Yeah. Or I wouldn't have had the gun out and started squeezing the trigger. But there may be times where you you have a little bit more time, maybe distance or maybe a barrier between you and the threat that you have a little bit more time to analyze it and see, Okay is the situation changing since I produced this gun? And if it does, then, you know, you might not have to shoot. So just the idea that like every time the gun comes out, I'm just going to put it on target and squeeze it, squeeze the trigger is kind of, you know, programming your brain to, you know, to respond to every situation, the same, which it may not, you know, respond or it might not work out that way.
0: Yep. You know, it's, those are great points. Uh, you know, so yeah, the way I interpret this is we need to understand the difference between the difference between how do I how do I phrase this? It all comes down to when the decision is made. Right? So, every time we press the trigger it should be deliberate and that it, you know I actually I decided to press that trigger, right? And I have a reason like I, I can articulate why I chose to press the trigger, right? And so, are there times for sure where I might draw and immediately go right into shooting? Yeah. Yeah, there's times where that's the case. Are there times where I would draw, but, you know, not be necessarily go immediately into shooting rounds? Yeah, I suppose that's possible too. Like, everything's situationally dependent. So just because we draw the gun doesn't mean that we should automatically be pressing the trigger. Now we should only draw the gun when there's legitimate threat to life, but kind of just depends on like, for instance, like um, a situation, let's try to paint this in a picture or in a way that where it makes a little bit more sense as far as how the situation might might dictate this. All right. So someone that is actively, Attacking you already like they're on top of you and maybe they don't necessarily have a knife or a gun, but maybe they've got a a Metal a metal pole or a bar or something and they're you know a pipe they're beat, beating you with um, Or a rock and they're trying to smash your head in okay, so like there's already a threat and it's very clear that, that threat is deadly or potentially deadly and you've made the determination. I've got to use my gun to survive you know to come through this well, in that situation, because that attack is already taking place, it is already imminent, you know, it it makes no sense to draw that gun and like, hey, I've drawn my gun, like, dude, back off. You know, it's like if they're right on top of you beating your head in, then you draw and you shoot, right? And the decision is made to do that from the moment that you reach for that gun. As soon as you have that opportunity to get the gun and get the gun out, You've already made the determination. This is what I have to do to survive this this attack. So you've already made the decision to press the trigger. So you draw, and the finger goes on the trigger, and you fire, right? Contrast that with a dude with a knife, but he's not rushing right at you right immediately, right? So like you encounter him in a parking lot one night as you leave the grocery store. And he's standing there with his knife by his side and says give me give me your wallet give me your purse give me your stuff right and but there's enough distance and he's not like closing in on you rapidly yet right so you but you recognize this is this is a threat he's trying to rob me and he's got a knife so you draw your gun and I'm boy you better believe me i'm going to come right up right on target on him i'm going to line those things up my finger might even be t- on the trigger prepping it or touching it right but i might you know because the situation go mm, but he's not really coming at me right the second I, I might have a chance to get through the situation without having to pull the trigger. Like that's – we should probably try to avoid that. Now, could you press the trigger and be justified assuming he's, you know, assuming it, it it's reasonable that – what I mean by that is I, I I'm really cautious to use the words 21 foot rule, for instance, the Tuler drill uh, to suggest that, well, because this dude's be, he's within 21 feet, therefore I can just press the trigger. That's not necessarily the case. That's not always that, that, that is not a de facto rule. That's not even something that's established in law. Uh, so that's just a, it's a guideline. And actually it's a teaching principle to teach somebody about reactionary gap. And that, Someone can close in on you from 21 feet or even 25 feet or even 30 feet in relatively quick order, and you need to be prepared for that. My point is, though, that you're in a situation where it's potentially deadly, but it's not yet an active, ongoing attack that might be a situation where the decision to draw the gun and the decision to press the trigger are made at two different points. I think that's that's what I was trying to explain a moment ago, is right? Is is there's times where the decision to draw and press a the trigger there, there's there's times where that's going to be the case, and the decision's made then and there's times where the decision's going to be two different decisions, all right? And we need to understand different situations and contexts of when that might be the case so we shouldn't be automatically training ourselves to always only be that one default of i only make the one decision i draw the gun and i'm going to fire it
1: right yeah and ken asked a good question he said as you were talking he said but then don't you open yourself up uh for being accountable for pulling your weapon when not needed to and I, and i think what, what did i
0: say lot. the dude had a knife Sorry, right. Continue. So
1: I think there's like, I think there's a nuance in there that's that. And I, I totally understand what Ken's saying is yep. that you don't want to draw your gun in, in a situation where you're not actually justified, but you are hoping that by drawing the gun, the situation will deescalate. That's a really bad idea. Um, right. I think. The the nuance is you're always justified to use deadly force when you pull the firearm out. Like that's a no brainer. I, I, then, like you said, there's a like a bifurcation. One is is it bifurcation? But where I ha- that's yeah, a where, 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 big word. Man, I've been on a lot of drugs, so I I must have picked up <laughs> something um, legal because I was. pain meds. Sorry.
0: I was going to say out of context quote of the day, that could be it right there. (laughs) I was on pain meds. Somebody's saving this right now and they're going to be putting it out there. Oh my gosh. I heard Matthew Marister say on the Concealed Carry podcast, I've been on a lot of drugs lately.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, pain meds. Okay. All prescribed. But like, there's a break in there where like the draw and like you said, the decision to fire is instantaneous and then there's other situations where the draw is still justified i still can use deadly force but i have the ability to not have to pull the trigger right away and i can assess the situation maybe one more time or we'll give it extra half a second before pulling the trigger so that's in in both of those you would not you know situations as long as you're drawing the gun and you're justified to use deadly force you wouldn't be in a situation where you're opening yourself up to some yeah. sort of liability or something.
0: I tried to be very clear as I said that it's a situation where you are absolutely justified in drawing and perhaps even using that gun. Just it's a situation where you make the decision that you don't necessarily have to use that gun just yet, right? Um, there are situations where that could totally be you know be the case where you 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 are actually in fact you you have a deadly threat being you know made towards you. Someone could very well, you know, I mean, a dude standing there with a knife from, who cares if it's fifteen feet or honestly thirty feet? It doesn't really matter if he's close enough to present a potential, you know, if he's close enough to present a threat to you, your life. Okay, there is guys, and actually, this could, this could totally be one of the myths. Maybe that's maybe this myth gets changed to there is no such thing as a twenty-one foot rule. There is no such thing as a standard in the law that says at 21 feet, someone with something other than a gun, like a knife or other deadly object, that at 21 feet, you could shoot him, but at 21 and a half feet, you can't. That doesn't exist. It's all about context and articulation, like what you perceive, what you actually interpreted from the situation, and you could say, look... He was, I don't know exactly how many feet he was for me, but I'm standing here and he's standing there and I know that if I didn't get that gun out right now, that he could charge me and he'd be on top of me in two seconds or less. Faster than I could probably get my gun out and shoot him enough times to stop him, right? That's what that's about. It's called reactionary gap. How much time does it take for you to, to recognize a threat, such as someone suddenly running at you with a weapon, how long does it take for you to recognize that? then make the decision to draw your gun and be able to get it out and fire it and stop them in time before they actually get to you. That's reactionary gap. And it's not a a for sure, you know, well-defined standard. It's, it's, Are there situations where it definitely gets a little bit gray? Yeah, it probably gets a little bit gray if that dude's at 50 feet. But he's very clearly talking to you and giving you threats. And you can see he has a weapon, but it's not a gun. It's a knife or something, a sharp object. He's at 50 feet. 50 feet might be a little bit of a stretch in some contexts, and for some people. And depending on what kind of prosecutor you have locally, how liberal or conservative they are where it comes to that kind of a situation. But what I can say is pretty much between... In 30 feet or less, you're probably okay. You're probably, I don't ever say absolutes in this regard. Probably okay. Anyway, all right. So I hope that's clear. I hope. All right. Yes, David's correct. There's never been a rule known as the 21-foot rule. I don't know where that got started, uh, but uh, we can address that another time in in greater detail. In fact, we could do a whole episode just talking about the 21-foot rule because I think there's a lot of really interesting good stuff there. Okay, so uh, all right, let's move on. Next, next myth. Got to move a little quicker now. <laughs> full Metal mm-hmm. Jacket ammunition is more ethical than hollow points. Matthew, what's your take on this? Man, every, every where, where time does this to even be, come from?
1: I, I I don't know. I've I've had it. I've had it asked or told to me in my class, and I think it comes from like there was a time where people thought full, uh, uh, hollow point were like. Uh, like body armor penetrating rounds or, you know, cause some jurisdictions say, oh, you can't carry hollow point ammunition. And I think it got this, you know, kind of like persona of its own that was like, these are more dangerous rounds. But I laugh because I'm like more humane or more ethical. It's like, if you shoot somebody with a full metal jacket or a hollow point in the center of the chest, there's not one that's more humane or the other, they're both Use, you're using deadly force the same amount of deadly force each time that you shoot that person doesn't matter what kind of ammunition you have so it's like and you're actually doing something you're actually being more humane in a way that by using full met or by using uh hollow point because you're reducing the risk of over penetration and, and hitting things that you don't want to hit and so this one like i i Every once in a while, somebody will say that, and I'll be like, "Well, why? You know, I'm not going to carry uh, hollow point because you know, uh, I I was I was told that you know it's not good, it doesn't look good." And I'm like, "Dude, I I don't know what to tell you, but that's wrong, <laughs> you know." And so I don't know if you've heard it, but I've I've heard yeah. it a couple of times.
0: I have run into it a little here and there. So I mean, where does this come from, as far as like this idea that it's even ethical to suggest that FMJs are are more ethical than? something that expands or whatever right so where where that where i believe it comes from is so there was these things called the Geneva conventions right there was not like a lot of people refer to as the Geneva convention there was actually several Geneva conventions they they now m- most of the time people talk about the Geneva convention they're referring to there was kind of this one and i think it's the one where the actual agreement on the fmj use Uh, came from which is I think in 1949 because it was a couple of years after World War II when this all happened. And basically a bunch of companies – you know, sat down and said, "This is our the rules. If if we're ever going to have another war again, like these are the rules that we'll follow when we when we have a war." Essentially, <laughs> it's kind of the way to think of it, right? There's also a thing called the Hague Conventions, which even established some additional thing. You know, and that's earlier, so that's actually the earlier thing. So the Hague Conventions established some kind of guidelines or rules for fighting and wars, and then the Geneva Conventions, uh, you know, expanded upon that as well. But somewhere throughout all the course of that, somebody somewhere said. Shooting soldiers with something other than an FMJ is is basically not ethical, right? So, and it you know, a war is different than an all-out fight for your life on the street, right? Because in a war, a casualty is a casualty, right? So a, a a man that's wounded is almost as good as a man that's dead. In fact, it's maybe, it's perhaps even better. Arguable that a wounded man's better than a dead man, because now that wounded man, you know. Matthew you could speak to this you spent some time in a war zone um, but if a guy goes down and he's dead like chances are other soldiers are going to be like well he's down we'll deal with him you know, we'll get him we'll recover his body but right now we still have this fight but when you have a guy that's wounded and he's still in a danger zone there's going to be two or three of them that's going to be used just trying to get the wounded guy back to safety yeah
1: right it takes it takes resources yeah for sure
0: yeah so the point in a war is it's different right it's Okay, I shot that guy. It doesn't matter if that bullet expanded or not. It doesn't matter if it, like, exploded inside his body and did all this crazy damage. That, that That's not what it's about. It's He's wounded. He's going to go down, and his are going to have to take care of him. Now, on a street where your life is, you, you, you know, hanging in the balance, like you're fighting for your life because a dude's trying to stab you or shoot you or kill you or your family or something, you need to stop him period. Now it doesn't mean you have to kill him or that your result the results of your action must result in death. It's not that. It's that but you need to shoot and shoot in such a way that results in a stoppage, whether it's a psychological stop or an actual physical stop uh, from from the rounds from the bullets that you're shooting at him. So the way that we are more effective is by using a round that expands. And it's a safety thing as J- as you already mentioned Matthew as far as you know, there's a, there's over penetration cons- considerations as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go on now to myth number four. I only need one good shot to stop the threat. And I'll start off with this one here. I only need one good shot to stop the threat. And this is really prevalent when when someone's talking about like if you ever get in that classic nine millimeter versus forty five debate, right? Well, I carry a forty five, nineteen eleven, and uh, I only need to shoot him once in a, in the right spot right, to stop him. Mm-hmm. And what's dumb about that is that if you shoot anybody in the right spot with just about any round, including a .22 long rifle, if you shoot somebody in the right place, if you if you knock them straight in the heart, if you knock them in the face and in the brain, like, there's a good chance they're going down, right? So, uh, and the other part of this is, You know, and I see this thrown out all the time too, because it's actually somewhat true. It's somewhat true that many, 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 probably most. Okay, it's probably fair to say most self defense shootings only require one or two, maybe three shots, right? And so, well, I don't need to carry. So the reason that's used as justification is, well, I don't need to carry more than say a five shot revolver or a six shot, you know, semi auto or whatever, right? Because most most situations are only one to two shots anyway so like i don't need a ton of capacity right but that and that may be true for most situations but there are situations and there are times where more than that is necessary in fact i can point you to a number of stories and we've talked about some even on this podcast justified saves where someone had to use a a good number of shots many shots half a dozen sometimes more you know emptying the magazine even almost to uh, stop a threat. So yeah, ever thinking that you only need one good shot to stop the threat, that is a myth because here's the thing. When a bullet enters a bad guy's body, we have no control of what happens after that beyond that. We control where that where the path of that bullet flies and its first point of impact, but after that it's out of our control. And we might think that, well, if I impacted him in the center chest, high center chest, that for sure it's going to pass right through and it's going to hit him in the heart, he's going to go down. Well, that's the likelihood of it, and that's probably statistically where it, what's most likely going to happen. But there are crazy things that happen when bullets enter enter people's bodies, and they sometimes take paths and do things that we don't expect them to do. Even when we're using yeah. good quality ammunition and we're shooting them in the right places.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Elifert's, Greg Eliferts did a great study and he put it together and it just like top, top of my head, about 60% of instances, um, a person stops the the, the assault um, with one shot and that's across all handgun calibers. It, it doesn't matter if it's a 380 or 9mm or a 45, about 60%, a little over 55% um, the person will stop within one shot but when you look at the other 45 or 50 percent um, they they then you look at how many rounds it took of each caliber to stop that person and it starts to change so you know your 22s have the same, a- amount of ability to stop somebody with one shot because there is a psychological component to being shot, right? Like you feel the pain, even though it's not a, 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 um, a lethal wound. A lot of times people will stop with one shot in a 22. They don't know if it's a 22 or a nine millimeter. So they, they, that is the same. But after that, when you have a, some, somebody that is bent on her harming you, the amount of rounds that it takes a 22 to stop is like five, six, seven rounds, whereas, you know, your nine millimeter 45s, those take one or two shots, you know, in addition. So it, when you look at all the, all the data, you know, it, it typically, yes. You know, if you want to just go statistically one shot normally stops the person. Um, but we we're, we're you know if we carried just based off of statistics we would never carry a gun because the probability of us even using our gun is is very remote so what about you know we have multiple attackers or you have the, you know you have to shoot through a car windshield or you know something like that you you, you can't plan for that so you you plan for the worst case scenario you normally and you hope for the best and and that's why i think we carry more rounds and mm-hmm. and you know we don't try to get that like oh i only need one shot just i'll have all the time in the world and get that one central nervous system hit and everything will go, you know. I mean, yeah, that'd be great, but that's not typically how it works.
0: Yeah. Now I gotta hit. I gotta address something head on here, though, because Jared says if you hit in the T box, it's all but a guarantee, and, and he's referring to basically like where the eyes and the nose, in the upper part of the mouth on the face are. That's that's sometimes referred to as the T box, uh, because it's kind of shaped like a T, right? And so I would say, yeah, it's likely if you hit somebody there that they're going to go down. Uh, but it's it's not guaranteed. In fact, far from. In fact, you know how many people have been shot in the face and survive? Tons of people. Happens all the time. Jeez, uh, we interviewed, uh, what's his bucket on the podcast? Your, your, your buddy, Matthew. Uh, Jared Slocum. Jared, that's right. Slocum. He got shot in the head. And uh, survive or forty-five caliber too. Yeah, I mean, crazy stuff, right? But and here's the other thing too. Like, yeah, if you shoot somebody straight on and you hit them in the in the t box, it's pretty likely they're going to go down, right? But. We have to understand we're shooting not just two two dimensional objects, we're shooting three three dimensional ones. And if their head is even turned just slightly, a few degrees to the one, you know, one side or the other, you might be thinking you're shooting in the right spot, but you're actually not. And that bullet may pass through the eye, through the side of the head, and totally miss everything that's important. Or into the nose and out the side, you know, up upper of the upper cheek or stuff like that. So we have to keep in mind like yes it's it's highly likely like probably greater than 90 percent probability that if you shoot somebody straight on, maybe it's even ninety eight percent who knows, but if you shoot somebody straight on in the t box, they're probably going down. but there's so many variables in a live action gunfight where targets are three dimensional and moving It only takes the uh, the slightest little movement even while that bullet could be still in flight, right. That someone begins moving their head as that, as that trigger is pressed, and by the time that a bullet actually gets there, it's moved just enough that you hit them in the right right place as far as what you perceive, but it actually misses everything that's important. So people get shot in the face, in the neck, in the head, even sometimes, all the time. Like I don't, I don't mean to say like it's you know twenty to thirty percent of the time somebody gets shot in the head and they somehow survive. It's not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it happens frequently enough that. Uh, A headshot is far from a guarantee. And by far, I mean like not a substantial percentage, but just it happens fairly frequently, all right? Anybody that works in an an ER or as an EMT or anything like that could probably, especially if they see a lot of gunshots, uh, but uh, they could probably vet what I'm saying here, all right? Um, I study this stuff quite extensively, Jared says my point is that if you do it, do it's all but a guarantee. I, I agree that any other shot in the head is not. And again, like I like I was saying i was talking about angles too. So um, you could hit somebody in the T-box from an angle and it that isn't actually going to, you know, do what do we do what we expect it to do. But anyway, all right. So, um, I I'm going to go on out to myth number 5. I won't use my sights or I won't see my sights when I'm in that self-defense high-stress shooting. Matthew
1: yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know if this is a total myth, right? It's, and it it, it takes some context. So, yeah, in those situations where you are on point shoot territory, right? Like you're shooting from close quarters um, where you wouldn't even need your sights. Yeah. Of course, you're not going to use your sights. Um, but anytime that you use your sights, you're always going to be more accurate. It, it's just, I mean, as long as you know how to use your sites, right? So as long as you know how to use your sites, if you use them, you will be more accurate than if you don't. But it's the application of when do you use your sites and how much of your sites are you going to use? So, you know, some sometimes people will be like, I won't use my sites at all. And so it's it begs me to ask, like, is that in every situation? Well, you know, in, in deadly force situations, they never use their sites. Cops just shoot. And, you know, they always say, I never saw my sites, I believe that partially, but I also believe that most of the, the 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 shootings that that they might have been using their sights and just not even perceived it. Where there's so much other stuff they're taking on, um, and, and they're taking into their you know their brain, um, picking up the sights is as 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 rote and as routine as squeezing the trigger. And you don't remember squeezing the trigger, right? Like some people say, I don't know how many shots I should fire up, maybe four, maybe five. You don't remember every trigger squeeze because it's something that you've practiced so much. Well, people that practice a lot pick up those sights almost instantaneously. And they might not always see the sights unless they're looking at their sights like on a range. But when they're getting shot at or attacked, they're still picking up their sights subconsciously. And so I think the idea that don't train with your sights is a bad idea because I won't need them when I shoot. Train with your sights because if you make that picking up those sights as routine as everything else, then you will start doing that subconsciously and you always shoot better. And so I think it just needs a little context, but yeah, you probably won't use your sights in certain situations, of course, but if you can use them, it's always better to use them as long as it doesn't take more time and, you know, put you behind the bait ball even more. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. But.
0: I'm with you. You know, so I, I absolutely believe, actually, uh, cops and people that have been in, in shootings that said, I never remember even seeing my gun. I totally believe that. And I, But but I'm going to say that's an indication, in my opinion. Now, I can't promise this about everybody, right? Uh, nothing is for sure tried and true when you're talking about situations where people had to shoot bad guys, right? Um, and you never truly fully know exactly how you're gonna respond, exactly how you're gonna react. I mean, I think there's a lot of things you can do training wise that are gonna put you on a path to have a high probability of success. but uh, but anyway, point is uh, I absolutely think cops and others have said I never saw my sights, I didn't use my sights, I had no idea. I was I was not even aware of my gun. But to me, and this is I think this is true because I also know I'm familiar with a lot of cops and where they are at. Training and skill-wise, and I would say that in a lot of situations, I think the cops that say they never, they don't remember seeing their sights. Probably is probably because they didn't use their sights, and it's probably because they don't practice and train enough, and their skill is not yet at a at a level where they would be able to actually even see their sights because there there's just too much going on, and they had not practiced or trained enough to make using the sights and aiming their gun intuitive enough to make it more muscle memory okay because that's where i think i mean so jared not jared slocum i was uh, i think of the other guy we interviewed um tim grammans right not too mm-hmm. long ago like 20 20 some odd episodes ago now uh, we had tim Grammons on and he was in that shooting in the chicago area and tim I'm, if you recall i asked him i said did you do you remember seeing your sights oh yeah absolutely and he knew he was getting good shots on this guy because he 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 was aware of his gun being aimed at the bad guy, and he could see that based on the trajectory and, and and where his bullets went through his I'm talking about his initial shots through the windshield, like he he was very much aware that I was making good shots. I was aiming my gun on this guy. I was making good shots. I had to have been hitting him, right? Uh, and so. That that's just one example, but also I think I think Jared Reston, he was the guy that was also in a shooting. Um, really really amazing uh, uh, firearms instructor now too. Um, and there's another name too that's that it's uh, you know I've I've sort of I'm I'm just having a little bit of a brain fart on it, but uh, I know there's another cop out there too that that is a big advocate of you know hey no like if you train to see your sights you will see your see your sights if you train to make that happen more automatically then it's going to happen because it happens automatically for you because your skill level is at a, at a point where you don't have to think about using your sights. You just do it because you've trained it enough times and made it automatic for you. But if it's not automatic for you because you don't practice or train enough, then it's probably not going to happen. That's, that's where I think I'm at with whether someone's going to use their sights in a defensive shooting or not. Mm-hmm. All right, so now, a lot of defensive shootings are not at, at great distances necessarily. So are sites super critical? Maybe not. But is it a good idea? Is it a good skill to be able to, to do and to use? Yeah, I think so. And you know what? Even if you're at a relatively close distance, if you can use your site, is it a bad thing to use your sites as long as it's not slowing you down unnecessarily? No, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a person's far better off being able to intuitively, naturally, automatically use their sites than to be incapable of of aiming their gun effectively. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, this is a, a myth that I think is, the, the myth is if anybody ever says, oh, you won't see your sights because it'll be too high stress for you or whatever, then that, that's, that's not necessarily true because you have the choice to train in such a way where you can make the use of your sights and the aiming of your gun automatic and then you have a high likelihood of actually using, and aiming, using your sights and aiming your gun, in a, even in a high-stress situation. Competitive shooters, I know it's not equal to a, a real-life shooting, but competitive shooters use their sights under stress very quickly all the time because they train to do that. All right, Military personnel, I, I could tell you, I'm pretty sure Kyle Lamb would back me up on this. Kyle Lamb would probably say, yeah, uh, I use my sights when I'm trying to shoot bad guys. Right, because he's trained to do that. So anyway, all right, let's move on. Myth number six: Dry fire practice is bad for the gun and useless because it doesn't account for recoil. And I think the bad part for the gun is we're talking about like you use your live gun and you repeatedly cock it or rack the slide and you press the trigger and you're you're damaging the firing pin. I, I think that's probably what what's being said here or suggested. So it's bad for the gun. So you're wearing out you know various parts or pieces of the gun by doing dry fire. And, um, you know, that's arg- I think that's arguable. Um, I definitely think there's some guns that it could be more of an issue for. Older guns, guns made from, you know, crappier materials, for instance. Uh, I definitely would not recommend dry firing an old, you know, like early ni- 1900s, late 1800s, you know, revolver. Uh, would probably not recommend dry firing that a lot necessarily, okay? Uh, but a modern revolver, probably not a big deal. Um, a semi-automatic, a modern semi-automatic, probably not a big deal. Um, and, and I'll say that from from experience. I've dry-fired a lot of guns thousands of times, and I have yet to replace any firing pins or stuff personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also know a gunsmith that says, Anybody that says that dry firing a gun will damage it or damage the firing pin somehow, he's like, that's a bunch of baloney. Because he's like, gunsmiths that work on guns every day, we dry fire the guns all the time. Because we're testing them as we work on them to verify they work. He's like, we're the gunsmiths. And there's one way. He's like, yes, could we use a snap cap? Yes. Is it probably a good idea to use a snap cap? Probably. He's like, but sometimes as a gunsmith, sometimes... I'm working on a gun that I don't own a snap cap for, or a snap cap doesn't even exist because it's a weird caliber. And so they dry fire all the time, just, you know, how that gun is. And if a gunsmith tells me, an experienced gunsmith says, uh, that's dumb because I dry fire them all the time because I'm working on them all the time, and there's that's the only way you can really test it, well, I'm going to probably listen to that guy because he works on, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of guns every year. I don't know. That's just my thought there. Useless because it doesn't account for recoil. That's also BS, but I'll let you speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, no, this does, I mean, this is pretty easy.
1: If you think about the shooting process, 99% of the shooting process happens before the shot even breaks your grip, your, you know, your, your sight alignment, your sight picture, your trigger squeeze, everything, every single thing that you do absent Managing the recoil or uh, like follow through, um, not breaking your position and everything ha- that happens after the recoil. But you can do ninety nine percent of working on your grip, tightening your grip, squeezing the trigger, and, and making sure your sights aren't moving. Looking at your sight alignment, sight picture, getting in tune with how how does that trigger break? At what point does it break? All that stuff you can do with dry fire. And then you go out on the range and you confirm it with live fire. And all and if you're, you, you are applying the fundamentals correctly, when you go out, the recoil won't be that big of a deal. It's when you try to do it the other way and you try to learn as the gun's recoiling how to grip the gun, it's much harder because if you're not gripping the gun correctly, you, you perceive a lot more recoil than the person gets scared of the gun because they're scared it's going to recoil too much. Whereas if they had a good solid grip to begin with, they would have never gotten into that loop. So, um, dry fire is, I mean, it's incredible. Just, just the fundamentals of shooting, but let alone like working on drawing and moving and presenting the gun and shooting, which a lot of stuff you can't do at ranges. I mean, all that stuff you can do in, at your house and, and constantly, um, it's just, it's invaluable. I don't know anybody who shoots, who is an instructor, a instructor, uh, 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 a competition shooter who says, no, I, I don't, I don't dry fire. I, I mean, I don't know anybody who would, who, who is worth anything that, you know, in the shooting world um, that doesn't dry fire.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think of who I was listening to or talking to recently. And they were talking about, I, I wish I could, you know, there's so many conversations and and things that, I mean, when, when you live this life, full-time like I do. I can't remember everything that crosses my desk. But I remember somebody recently talking about, maybe that was even a podcast interview. Uh, that might be true too. Uh, that might have been with Sean Burroughs, now that I think about it. Maybe Carl Wren. But someone was talking about, you know, as I, the more I think about it, it was uh, it was it it was on the podcast with one of the recent interviews where they were talking about a shooter that didn't really get a chance to, you know, I think they lived in the Philippines or something where they couldn't really own a gun or shoot a gun all that much, and so they just did a lot of dry fire practice, and they practiced all the different, you know, drills and reloads and all this stuff, right, and just practiced dry fire so much, and then when it came time that they actually were able to put a a live gun in their hand and shoot and practice, you know, and actually practice with a real gun, like, they were really good. Because that dry fire, I mean, but the, the thing is, it's got to be done correctly, right from the get go. The dry fire has to be done correctly, um, and you needed to get a lot. You need to get a lot of repetitions. Like at the end of the day, what most shooters need, when it comes to practice on shooting a gun, is just simply more repetitions. Period. Like we all probably need more repetitions, uh, good repetitions, right? Not not crap. Good repetitions. We but we need more of them. We need thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions honestly speaking, to be really good shooters, all right? That's what the amazing shooters have is a lot of repetitions. I think it might have been the Carl Wren podcast, and I know we talked about Jerry Mitchell a little bit there too, talking about how he has, uh, um, you know, he's talked a number of times. I've heard it several different places where he talked about just working his uh, trigger on his double axe revolver thousands of times in the early days, and that's how Jerry got to be as good as he is. And Most of it was probably dry fire. Shana says she defeated her anticipation issue through dry fire. Uh, Dry fire makes a huge difference in your skills before going out back out to live fire again. I'm absolutely with you there, Shana. And that's been my experience as well. Myth number seven. So this is uh, called revolvers don't fail. So sometimes I see this debate of revolvers versus semi-autos. Well, the big, the big, big, big argument for revolver is that they are, 100% reliable, which that's not far from the truth, but it's probably more like 99.9% reliable, maybe 99.99 even. Um, so there's an article on our site, by the way, that, we're, that some of the articles we're referencing today in today's episode, I'll try to make sure those make it to the uh, show notes uh, of the uh, published episode. Um, but uh, in today's episode, uh, show notes can be found once the podcast episode is actually published, you can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 310, and that'll be a short link to uh, to not only be able to listen to this episode, but also go straight to the show notes. Um, but anyway, so this there's an article, uh, I think this was written by Josh Gillum, who's our managing editor at concealedcarry.com, and he wrote this article about revolvers. Revolvers don't fail? What? He actually pointed out a couple of instances in that article where revolvers have failed. Uh, So that's true. Like, they they are still a mechanical device that can and will sometimes fail. Is it as uh, likely to some sort of failure or malfunction as a semi-auto? No. Are revolvers more reliable than semi-autos? Yep, pretty much. So that is still a valid argument. But to believe that my revolver will never fail, that's wrong. And to believe that my revolver doesn't need maintenance because it's just, it's unfallible and it's unfailable, you know, no, that's not true. Revolvers need maintenance, they need to be taken care of. They still need to be occasionally taken to a gunsmith and and just like a we might take a glock to a glock armor every once in a while. I think you should, by the way, if, if you have never taken your gun, if you've got thousands of rounds through it, it's probably not a bad idea to find a, a reputable gunsmith and/ or armorer to take it to to have them check it out. and that's that's the same as true with revolvers because while revolvers are pretty simple. There is something that's very important about a revolver and that is its timing. Okay. So the timing of the turning of that cylinder and where the cylinder locks in place, there's, there's, there's what's called the hand that's responsible for turning the cylinder, and there's the stop, which actually stops the cylinder and locks it in place. It's supposed to be exactly in line with the barrel, right? And both of those things can get a little bit out of whack because parts get a little bit worn or whatever. So anyway, point is, don't think or get fooled in thinking that your revolver will go forever and ever and ever not need any sort of maintenance and not ever possibly fail. Cause that's just not true.
1: Yeah. No, I can't add anything. That's awesome. I, I like Brad made a comment. Uh He said they fail less. I think that's more yes. app appropriate than never fail. They fail less because there's less maybe user induced malfunctions that could happen.
0: Yep. That is, that is a great way of saying it. Matthew, why don't you talk to us about myth number eight, and this is yes. the myth that dead people don't talk so or or sue. Dead people yeah. don't sue, so shoot to kill. Yeah, well, the first thing is... <laughs> Make sure your bad guy's don't. dead.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree that dead people don't talk. I mean, that's part of being dead is that it's difficult to talk. But while the person themselves doesn't sue, somebody in that person's family could sue on their behalf. So yes, that's that's false. and And this kind of goes along with like, well, you know, no witnesses, you know, um, shoot them and and, and I'll drag them into the, into the, into the house or something. Right. Cause like, uh, I'd rather, I'd rather, rather have them be the, I'd rather be the only one who survives because then they don't have their story to tell. And it's, it's like, this is an outdated idea that like police can't put a crime scene together and can't figure out where the body was and why there's drag marks from you know, outside your porch, down through your kitchen, you know, it's like, don't mess with the evidence, be true in your opinion of the situation, your analysis of the situation. If you're truly in fear of what's, you know, death or serious bodily injury, draw your firearm, use deadly force, let it shake out. Um, you know, act responsibly and full of truth and and you'll be fine. Um, But you can get sued by somebody's estate or, you know, people after the fact. And so um, the idea that like, Oh, I'll just shoot them until they're dead. And it's my word against his. Well, yeah, that might be, that might be. Um, But that's really not, you know, probably not the, um, the ethical thing to do. And it's not morally correct. And it's just, it's, it's, not why we use deadly force to begin with. So yeah. I think, you you know, if that's the way you're looking at using deadly force, you're, you're, you know, off in the weeds, like doing something illegal. So.
0: Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's two things. Like the, the whole, like, could you be sued because you shot somebody uh question? Okay. So you've already touched on, you know, the, there's the fact that uh yeah, their, their state could potentially sue, right. Or they survive, and they, they are able to sue or whatever. So, and, and that'd be the argument. Well, why, I, why I should make sure he's dead because then he can't do anything to me. And it's, uh, that, that's a really dumb argument, but a lot of States have laws written such that, uh, you, if you are found to be, um, what's the word? Not liable, but, uh, uh, <laughs> I had the word and then it's gone, you know? So basically if, 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 a shooting that you were involved in was ruled as justified, you know, self-defense, then you'd also have, ah, that's the word, immunity from a civil case as well. Um, they could try to bring that suit against you, but it would just get thrown out in court because you have immunity, all right? Because it was already ruled on uh, in the first place in the on the criminal side of things that you committed no crime and you were justified in your actions, right? Um, but that's not for every state. So you need to understand the laws for your state. And so it, it actually the, the answer to this question somewhat depends on what state you're in and what, jur, uh, what jurisdictions you're in, what the law say, says in regards to civil cases in self-defense situations. Um, but at the end of the – you know, like the, the bigger thing for me is that it's just wrong and immoral and unethical to finish somebody off or to shoot somebody and continue to shoot in such a way that I see it as being reckless And again, immoral and unethical because you stop pulling the trigger when the person ceases being a threat, no matter what that looks like, all right? So that's why we teach not shoot to kill, but shoot to stop, shoot to stop the threat. And if your mindset is such that you shoot and you shoot until they are dead, 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 then you're in the wrong, you're unethical, you're immoral, and you should go burn in hell is my opinion on that, right? <laughs> because that's wrong, all right? Because that makes you, I'm sorry, it makes you, yes, I understand that person was trying to hurt you in the first place. I understand they were, you know, it, it was their actions that brought you to this point, not your own. But that's called, in my opinion, murder. When they stop being a threat, when they fall to the ground and they cannot move, they're no, no longer a threat to you. So if you continue forward in your shooting to the point that they are in fact dead, well, you just murdered them because they had already stopped being a threat to me. It's justified to kill somebody when they are, when, when they are trying to kill you and they continue to try to kill you. But as soon as that situation stops, as far as them being able to like, remember we talked, we talked in a recent shop talk by the way about the uh, five elements of self defense. And we talked about, uh, you know, proportionality, reasonableness, uh, imminence, all these things, right? And talked about jeopardy and ability and opportunity, right? And if somebody can't move, they've been incapacitated, but they're still alive. Like, they no longer have the opportunity to, to hurt you. They don't even have the ability to do so. So as, as soon as we cross that line, then, then it's called murder, in my book. Not self-defense anymore. And I think that's how the law would look at it in most cases as well. So we don't shoot to kill. We shoot to stop. All right. Final myth. Number nine. And uh, Matthew, how you doing on time? I'm good. Do- I'm good. All right. Uh, but we'll, we're, we're going to wrap this up here. Right at about an hour. All right. Myth number nine. I don't need additional training or practice. I've shot guns since I was a kid. How many times have you heard this, Matthew? Yeah.
1: I. You know, I I hear it all the time. And I actually, I don't know if this ties into it, but I actually had a guy who said, yeah, I've been shooting my whole life. You know, do I still need to take the, you know, take the, the class? I'm like, yeah, unfortunately, you know, you got to take it as a state thing. And he's like, well, I don't have, I don't have any handguns. Can I bring a shotgun? I shot shotguns my whole life. And I'm like, you know, this is a concealed carry class. Right. And he's like, yeah, but I've been shooting my whole life. I mean, everything's the same. And I'm like, okay, no, you get, you, you can't shoot it you can't shoot a shotgun at a concealed carry class. It's just not going to happen. I'm like, <laughs> so I mean like, yes, shooting is sh- pulling the trigger. I understand. And the safety rules are pretty much apply to all guns, but shooting is not shooting. I always make the an- an- analogy is that like, if you're a bullseye shooter, if you're shooting sh- pop cans off your fence or something at distance, right? Like th- equate that to running a marathon. And then if you're training for, you know, a self-defense shooting, it- Let's say you're a sprinter. They're both running, but in order to train as a sprinter, you develop different skills and muscles and and abilities that a, a, a that a marathon runner wouldn't have. You don't have the same endurance. But as a marathon runner, you know you're building endurance, you're building lean muscle and things like that. So, it it, it there are different skills that you build depending on the type of activity you're going to be doing with that with that firearm.
0: Yeah. I I call this a myth because uh I don't necessarily hear anybody tell me I don't need additional training or practice. I just think that there are people that actually sort of believe that or feel that within themselves that you know, it's it's not a priority for them to seek additional handgun especially uh, or self-defense type, you know, defensive shooting training. Um n- nobody is is ready f- to be involved in a self-defense shooting. Like nobody is truly. Uh, there's people that are way closer to being ready than others. Uh, the average citizen that carries a gun for self-defense, or that the average gun owner, even is not even where anywhere close to being ready to be in a self-defense shooting. You know, from a variety of contexts and standpoints, and perspectives. I mean, like even mentally, the mindset, uh, emotionally, they're probably not ready. Uh, and then there's the shooting skill too, that just is not at a level where it probably needs to be to be in a high-stress environment where the crap's hitting the fan, and you've got to execute fairly fine motor skill-related things uh, under time and under pressure, right? So anyway, the point is um, I don't think anybody actually says this per se. Like I don't need additional training, but I hear this comment made fairly frequently in my concealed carry courses. I ask people about their backgrounds and their training, and I hear this comment. Well, I've been shooting guns since I was a little kid. I say the same thing, by the way. Uh, you know, cause it's true. I've been shooting since I was a little kid, but sometimes I feel like people are saying it like, well, I'm really just here cause I got to fulfill a requirement to go apply for my permit. Be- but the reality is I've been shooting since I was a little kid. So I'm very familiar with guns. I know how to work a gun. You know, I'm just here because I have to, I, I have to take it to class to get a permit cause that is the case here in Colorado. And that's what I hear. And to me, that could just be, you could just change that phrasing a little bit and, and they might as well just be saying, I don't need this training. I don't need this class. I've been doing it since I was a kid, my whole life I was in the military, whatever. And uh, so I, in other words, I don't need to go and take additional training courses, just the ones that are legally mandated, but that is such a, that's such a, a, that's, that's a myth. Okay. If that's where you think you are, like, why are you carrying a gun? Oh, well, for self-defense. Uh, you know, I need a permit to do that, to carry concealed in my particular state. So that's why I'm here in the training. Um, okay. You know, that's, that's great. And I applaud you. And, but my goal in every class, every concealed carry class is to teach and encourage them to not just stop right there at the permit and with the training for the permit, but to keep going because there's way more like the world just in shooting and especially defensive shooting, it just it opens up in a huge way, but it's sometimes really hard to get somebody to that point where they can see that and, they, and then suddenly realize, wow, there's a lot more that I need to be doing. I know that there was a, a wake-up point for me in my own life uh, as well in that regard where I was like, wait a minute. I am not as good as I thought I was. I am not as prepared as I thought I was. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I don't know squat. I still don't necessarily think I know. I mean, I certainly don't know everything. Uh, some people probably think I act like it. That's probably true, but uh, uh, I'm a I'm an authority. I'm on the radio. You know, I got to talk like I know what I'm talking about, right? I just you know. Anyway, no, I'm just. Kidding. So uh, the point is, um, like, we all need more training. Uh, I've I made it pretty clear that I I try. My personal goal is to achieve at least, and I still think I could do better and more, but. But uh, you know you got to balance family life and being a dad and being a husband and being you know having a job and doing a podcast twice a week and all this stuff. Um, but uh, you know my, my personal goal is to get eighty hours of training for me. Not where I'm training other people. Not where I'm just going. I'm not talking about going to the range and practicing. I'm talking about where I attend a class or I'm working with another instructor that's showing me stuff. Eighty hours a year. And. I think a lot of people do really well if they set personal goals to just try to do 40 a year. That's one week of tr- legit shooting or defensive handgun training. F- one week, five, eight-hour days. That's a big commitment. And most people, honestly, can't – well, they probably think they can't do it. They probably can if they prioritize it, right? But uh, the, uh, it would, we'd be in a much better place you know, as a society if – like We already are in a great place because we have committed, dependable, responsible gun owners that also carry guns concealed uh, and are ready to act in a lot of cases. But we would be even better off if most of those people also achieved 40 hours of training a year. I'm not saying they should be required to. I'm just saying that's like what I think we should aspire for, but many do not.
1: Yeah. And I'll just add one more thing to that, just because I know, um, I've, I've heard and I've seen some statistics, um, that, you know, and it's, and it probably bears out to be true. Um, the majority of people we see use guns in self defense. If you watch like active self protection videos and all that, um, in the stories that we cover, defensive gun uses, many of those people have little to no actual formal training outside of maybe a permit class or something or a basic handgun class. So the idea is that like, well, if these people, if the majority of people that use your firearms, you know, um, don't have additional training, why do I need it? You know? And the the reason why I would say is, you know, it's fun, number one, but number two um, by getting training, it allows you to respond to situations In different ways and it gives you different options where if you have trained and you know how to use cover or you know how to shoot around cover or um it it just gives you the ability to respond to a situation better tactically and maybe present yourself less danger in that event itself so whereas you might you know, know how to just pick up your gun off the bedroom and point it at the guy who's standing in front of your doorway and pull the trigger, maybe through training, you know, if the situation presents itself a little bit differently, where you pull the trigger and nothing happens. Now, maybe if you've taken training, you know, okay, I tap rack and get the gun back in action or whatever it might be. Or you might go through training and realize this gun really isn't great for me. It it keeps jamming or something and I need different gear. So training, while, you know, it's not the only predicate predicate that will determine whether you win or lose that gunfight, it definitely gives you options and it will expose things that you would never thought of. And it'll make you um, better able to survive a wide variety of things.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Good stuff, man. And appreciate all those of you viewing on Facebook today and for your comments and participation. And uh, for those of you not, you know, just listening to the podcast uh, feed, we appreciate you too. And make sure you're you signing up for the weekly giveaway that we do on Tuesdays for everybody. And make sure you sign up right now by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. All right. Today's episode is made possible by the concealedcarry.com adhesive reactive targets. My favorite peel and stick targets and uh, they're they're very excellent. They have they have an excellent price. All right, so they're they're very affordable. Uh, we do our best to keep them affordable. Uh, we ship them in a variety of different sizes, of, of, you know, so you can order. I can't remember all the different packs, you know, but you can get them in different quantities. Uh, so whatever suits your budget and whatever you're looking for, just go to our store. I told you I was going to look up the coupon code. Oh shoot, I forgot. Um, let's see here. I'm going to go on to the next thing here, and I'll see if I can dig that up really quick. Um, actually, Matthew, message Mitch and ask him what the coupon code was. Then we I'll can tell the folks. Now, mm-hmm. uh, now uh, Mark asked, did we hit 65? I'll talk to you some more about that here in just a minute. Um, and today's episode also made possible by Guardian Nation. So remember, go check it out. We have four, over 42 hours of training from top instructors in the industry across the country, and I listed off a huge list of names, and uh, I'm excited that three of those on that list I am training with this year, and I'm looking forward to my class with Dave Spaulding in just a little more than a, uh, little more than a month, about a month and a half or so. It's going to be a great time. Uh, but anyway, make sure you check out Guardian Nation. Visit guardiannation.com today and learn more, all right? Many, many, many benefits to membership. That's just one little aspect, but it's a huge aspect. It's a big, it's a big deal. A lot of great training opportunities and video content online for members and members area of Guardian Nation. Thanks so much, people, for being here and joining us today. Matthew, you're funny. This episode made possible by Riley's Lost Hours of Sleep. Sleep. Yeah, I can't even get that out, clearly, right? So it's true. I've been not sleeping a lot lately. But I have a new bed now, and I am looking forward to making use of that tonight. Uh, Nice new mattress and everything. Like It's going to be... I'm going to sleep good tonight. We hope, right? <laughs> I better. Anyway, yeah. So I've been working on a lot on some exciting projects. I've touched a little bit about it. You know, talking about this new shot timer that's going to be coming to market here very soon from us. And uh, yeah, I've been working a lot to make some of that possible. Now, it doesn't look like Matthew's got the coupon code. Not um, just yet. Back. So <laughs> I guess, I'm sorry, folks. I ah, got it. I just ah, got it.
1: Sweet. You, got it. You, you ready to copy this? Sure, it's the word target in the year eighteen ninety two.
0: Target uh, one eight nine two. I think somebody even commented something somewhere up above, and I didn't understand what they were, what that was in reference to. Target is just singular, right? Not targets, just singular. And that target will give you eighteen ninety two, which was the first year that the semi-automatic pistol was invented. Yep. Target eighteen ninety two will give you an eighteen. Point nine two percent (laughs) off. Yes. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) There you go. Target 1892 for uh, 18.92% off of our adhesive reactive targets available at concealcarry.com. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you being a part of this episode with us today. Take care. Be safe out there. And just a reminder to train off and – or train right. I always get the train right and train off and part. Like, I get everything else perfect, but – Train right, train off, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true.